Let's pray together. Father, what an incredible thing you have done in sending your Son. What an incredible thing that you have done, that you prophesied thousands of years before that you would do this thing. And Father, what a wonderful thing it is that you keep your promises. Lord, that what you declare comes to pass. And so, Father, today, as we come to your word together, I pray, Father, that you would forgive us of our sins. Lord, that you would help us to recognize our own depravity, our own shortcomings, our own failures, our own wickedness, and help us to repent, Lord. Grant repentance to your people, Lord, that we would turn from our sin and place our faith more fully in Christ today and every day. Father, as we come to your word together this morning, as we examine these things, as we think about the coming of your Son in the incarnation, Father, I pray that Christ would be glorified and exalted in our hearts. That as we consider these things together, that we would not lift ourselves high, that we would not place our trust in ourselves, but that we would trust in Christ and Christ alone. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Last week, we concluded our series through the book of Malachi. Malachi was the final Old Testament prophet. His book comes last in the Old Testament for a reason. He was the last one. And Malachi concludes by pointing ahead to the day of the Lord. The coming day of the Lord when all wickedness will be destroyed. And I don't say wickedness as kind of this nebulous term. I say wickedness in terms of the wicked. All the wicked will be destroyed. But before that day, the Lord has promised that a messenger will come. A prophet in the mold of Elijah. A great prophet who will come to, as as the Lord says in Malachi, to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. It is the kindness of the Lord that does this. The Lord loves his people. He loves his people. And so he is going to send someone before the judgment. Before the judgment to say, judgment is coming. It would be reasonable to expect this to come quickly. The people who are Malachi's contemporaries, who heard these words from the Lord, who read these words from the Lord, it would be reasonable for them to think, this is going to happen soon, at least in relative terms. However, it doesn't. In fact, after the words of Malachi, the Lord is silent for 400 years. 
The last prophet says, the day is coming soon. And then nothing. There are no prophets, no writings, no messages, nothing. Just subjugation under other nations as Israel waits for salvation. And during this time of waiting, Israel's understanding of what the Lord will do gradually becomes less and less about His glory and more and more about their own exaltation. Which is fitting, since they had long since lost the point of their role as the people of God, which was to bring about the salvation of the nations. In the midst of this prolonged spiritual darkness. In the fullness of time, the Lord suddenly intervenes in a way that they should have expected. But they were blinded by their own sin and completely missed it. And it is in that setting that we come to our text today in Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, and so you'll see if you got a bulletin or one of our sermon listening guides, you'll see that there are two points this morning. And the first point is the voice in the wilderness. The voice in the wilderness. Let's look together at Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis... And Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the priesthood, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you were authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Our passage opens with some identifying context. This is important because these are actual historical events. Placing these events within the times of these particular men in these particular places helps the reader recognize the truthfulness of the account. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius was likely 29 A.D., 
plus or minus a year, depending on how you date things. This is also important because these particular men represent some of the worst of politics and faith. All the names that are mentioned here are names that evoke wickedness and intrigue, including the names of the priests. These are indicators of this being a particularly dark time, especially spiritual darkness among the people of God. And we're told that at this time and at this place, the word of God came to John in the wilderness. The phrase used there is similar to the phrase used for how the Lord spoke to the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. If you go back and look in their books, you see the word came to them. The word came to them. The word came to them. In the same way, the word of God comes to John. But in order to fully make sense of John, we need to go back a couple of chapters to Luke chapter 1. And so flip back in your Bible a page or two over to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We read of an average priest named Zechariah with an average wife named Elizabeth who are not notable in any way save for the fact that they are righteous and walk blamelessly in the commandments of God. They're not people of status or stature. They're not particularly well-known. They're not wealthy. They are not important to anyone. And yet here they are. We're told that they are old. And they have no children. Because Elizabeth was barren. And suddenly, one night, Zechariah is chosen by Lot to go into the temple to offer the incense offering, to go and burn incense. This is a regular custom that they did. They said, whose turn is it to go and burn the incense? Well, we'll let the Lord decide. And so they would cast lots. This is not random happenstance. The Lord, who is sovereign over all things, 
made it so that on this particular night, Zechariah was the one whose lot was drawn. And he goes into the temple. And as he is entering into the temple to burn the incense, what does he see but an angel of the Lord next to the altar? Remember, 400 years have passed. There is no one alive who knows anyone who has ever lived, who knew anyone who had ever lived that saw an angel. And yet here, before Zechariah, inside the temple is an angel. And angels, just for the record, they don't look like that. Right, that's not, not what they look like. There's a reason why every time an angel shows up, the first words out of their mouth are, don't be afraid, don't be troubled, don't be alarmed. It's because they're terrifying. And again, an angel shows up, and what does he say to Zechariah? Don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Because Zechariah was troubled. He was afraid. And the angel tells him, you will have a son. Now remember, 400 years have passed since the Lord spoke to his people. Since an angel showed up and said, this is the word of the Lord. And an angel shows up. And the angel doesn't say, soon you will have salvation from your Roman captors. The angel shows up and he doesn't say, hey, you guys are in sin. You need to do what's right. The angel shows up and says to this one priest, you will have a son. Think about the magnitude of this message. You will have a son. And this son will be set apart for the Lord. We know this because we're told he will have no wine or strong drink. This is an indicator of something called the Nazarite vow which you can find in Numbers chapter 6. And those who took the Nazarite vow are set apart for the Lord. They are especially consecrated. Things that are okay for other people of the nation of Israel are not okay for people who take a Nazarite vow because they say, I am set apart for the Lord for special purposes. And so they, they eat and drink nothing from a grapevine. They don't drink juice, they don't drink wine, they don't use seed oils, they don't use any of that. They consume none of that, right, Jenny Kate? They do not cut their hair. Their hair grows from the moment they are born until the day that they die. And they do not touch anything dead so as to become unclean. You see, people who were following the Jewish law could touch unclean things. They would just have to go through the purification process afterward. That's how they dealt with things like when their family members died. But for those who took a Nazarite vow, they wouldn't even do that. And so this baby who was to come would be set apart for the Lord. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit from within his mother's womb. This is significant because what we see in the Old Testament is different regarding the Holy Spirit than what we find in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is given to us, given to the people of God as a seal, as a sign and a seal of his promises. In the Old Testament, 
The Spirit was given, the Spirit was taken away. Famously, Saul, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And then later, when Saul was in sin, the Spirit of the Lord departed him. But it's often talked about that the Spirit would come upon people in moments of particular holiness or righteousness or reverence. But John was different. In his mother's womb, he had the Spirit. And what will he do? What will he do? He will turn the hearts of the people to God. The angel uses the language that we found in Malachi. That he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That he would turn the hearts of fathers to the children. This is the prophet that they have been waiting for. To prepare the way for the one they've really been waiting for. Zechariah doesn't believe the angel at first. He asks questions. How, how, how can this be? I'm old. My wife is old. She's barren. If you, if you are familiar with the Bible at all, those questions are going to sound familiar to you. Because they're the same questions that Abram asked when the angel showed up to him and said, you're going to have a son. And he said, um, how? I'm old. My wife is old. And she's barren. And the angel tells him, well... Since you didn't believe me, as a sign, you will be unable to speak until the baby is born. Think about how heavy this will weigh on this man. Think about it. He has just experienced something that the nation of Israel has been longing for. He is going to want to run out of the temple and say, the Lord has spoken. And he can't say a word. He cannot say a word. We're told in Luke chapter 1 that he comes out. And it was apparent to everyone that he had seen something. And they said, what do you see? What did you see? What did you see? Can't talk, sorry. Later on, Elizabeth is with child, and as she is with child, her cousin Mary comes to visit, who has also been visited by an angel and told, you are going to have a son. And just like her cousin Elizabeth, who it was not possible to have a son because she and her husband are old and she is barren, Mary says, it's not possible for me to have a son because I've never slept with a man. The thing that is required to have a baby, I have never done. And yet, she is also with child. And the scriptures tell us in Luke 1, 39 through 45, this. In those days, Mary arose and went, to, went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It's a pretty incredible thing that a clump of cells can leap for joy, huh? What a thought. 
Anyway, that's a little aside. John the Baptist prophesied about the Messiah before he was even born. The fact that he was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb meant that when he was in the presence of the Savior, he was overcome with joy. So much so that his mother knew it. What an incredible thing. What an incredible thing. And then a little while later, John is born. John is born. And all of his relatives want to name him after his father. And his mom says, nope, his name is John. And they all argue with her, which is such a weird thing to think. Like, could you imagine going to the hospital and arguing with, your fam- with, with, with a woman in your family when she has a baby? We're going to name him this. No, don't do that. Well, no, I could, there's some names I think people should argue with, but this isn't one. And they say, but there's nobody, in, there's nobody in your family. None of your relatives are called John. And so they go to Zechariah, and they're like, what should we call him, Zechariah? Don't you, want, don't you want your son, who you've waited for for so long, to be named after you? And Zechariah gets a writing tablet, and he writes down, his name is John. And immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through, the hill, through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. See, one big distinction, one big difference between Jesus and John is that John's birth was well known. John's birth was a publicized thing. The events surrounding it were were such that everyone thought, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. This kid is going to be something big. And now, continuing the trend of the members of this family being filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told this at the end of Luke chapter 1. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Zechariah, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesies. He blesses God. 
He speaks of the fact that salvation has come. Come from the house of David as they've all been longing for. And then he calls John a prophet. And he says, the sunrise shall visit us. Again, that language from Malachi. Malachi 4.2, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy are finally coming true. And John, we're told there at the end of chapter 1, at the very end, goes out into the wilderness. And then in chapter 3, that's where we find him, right? The word of, the, the word of God came to John out in the wilderness. And so what does he do? We're back in chapter 3 now can flip back over. We're told that he goes out into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We'll come back to this message of repentance in a bit. But I wanted to set the context, I wanted to set the stage for who John was because I want you to picture this guy. Long hair that has never been cut. Wandering around out in the wilderness like a wild man. We're told elsewhere that he eats locusts and wild honey. He wears garments that are made out of camel's hair. This is not a soft man with soft words. But he is a man of God who is speaking his word to his people. I think it's important for us to remember this. Because oftentimes when we think about the gospel and about proclaiming the gospel, we think about it in terms of how nice we must be. We must be soft and gentle as we proclaim the gospel. John was not soft. He was not gentle. What was he? He was bold. He was fearless. He was truthful. That is what we must be. We're told that John fulfills the, prophet, the, the prophecy coming from Isaiah, which says the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In ancient times, when a city or town knew that they would be getting a visit from the king, they would go about some renovation projects. They would go out and they would straighten and widen the road coming into town. Because the king would come with a big entourage. He would have all kinds of men with him. There would be flag bearers and lots of pomp and circumstance and celebration. And it's really hard to do that down a little uneven winding path. And so they would go out and they would straighten the road and they would widen it so that the king would be able to receive a proper welcome. Well, this king who is coming is far greater than any earthly king. And to make proper room for his glory, they must level and straighten everything. Every valley shall be filled Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight and all the rough places shall become level ways. 
in order to truly, properly welcome the king who is coming, you really, really, really need a big path. Why? Because this king is coming so that all flesh will see the salvation of God. Again, the message of salvation to the whole world that Israel totally forgot. I mentioned before about John's message of repentance. I want to come back to that. This is the message of salvation. Repent and place your faith in the coming king. But the question is this, what is repentance? What is repentance? Is it saying I'm sorry? Is it saying I'll try my best? What is repentance? Repentance is confessing sin. Repentance is acknowledging before God that we are sinners who are undeserving of his love and favor. That is what repentance is. And that's the message that John proclaims. And if you'll notice, John has a terrible church growth strategy. Awful, terrible, ridiculously bad. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers! Would you guys like that on Sunday mornings if Pastor Michael got up to welcome you and said, good morning, you brood of vipers? Probably not, right? You might not come back again. John doesn't care. John is proclaiming the truth. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John says to them, you must Repent, and not just repent, you must bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to take from these stones to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. One of the things that the Jews did was they trusted in their lineage. We are children of Abraham. We are the people of God. My daddy and his daddy and his daddy's daddy and his daddy's daddy's daddy, daddy, all the way back. I'm descended from Abraham. I'm one of the people. John says, don't get this wrong. Don't think, well, I'm a child of Abraham. I don't have to repent. Because God doesn't care about your lineage. God does not care about your bloodlines. God will raise up from the stones children of Abraham. That's what God does. Instead, you must bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so what that looks like is turning from sin. Repentance brings about turning away from sin. That's what we see in verses 10 through 15, where different groups of people ask questions like, well, what should I do? What should I do? How, how, how do I do what is right? And John gives very basic instructions. You see, here's the reality. If you claim that you have repented of sin and your life is not changed, you have not repented of sin. That's the reality that you are faced with. That's what John's message was. Don't trust in your church membership. Don't trust in the fact that you got dunked in some water. Don't trust in the fact that you said a prayer when you were seven years old when the preacher came to your house. Don't trust in those things. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Because only those who are truly born again will do that. 
That's the only way we know, is that we bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Lives that bear true fruit are lives that are changed. And John says to them, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, does not, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You might think, well, I, I'm, I'm a good tree. I'm a good tree planted by streams of living water. But even now, even now, John says, the axe is being laid to the root of the tree. And you'll be thrown into the fire if you do not bear fruit. The next thing we see in our passage is we see the one who is coming in verses 15 through 22. The one who is coming. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is, might, he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for, Herod, by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the first move of God that the people have seen in hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. And so what are the people asking among themselves? Is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah who we've been waiting for? Is this him? Is he the one? And John tells them, no. There is one who is coming who is greater than I. He is so much greater than I, I am not even worthy to untie his shoes. Now that to us sounds a little weird. But remember, in this culture, untying the sandals is the job left to the servant whose job it is to wash the feet. And as we covered before when we, when we walked through Mark's gospel, washing feet was the lowest job for the lowest servant in the household because it is disgusting. And some of you people who don't like feet are about to say amen. But it's even grosser than that because remember, these folks walked everywhere in open-toed sandals on dirt roads that animals also traveled down. So every time it rained, it turned into poop mud. And that is what was all over their feet. And so this was a disgusting job. And John says, the one who is coming is so great that I am not even worthy to wash his feet. Remember, John was the one that everybody knew about. He was the one that everybody knew about from the moment of his conception. Everybody knew. And then he was born and everybody thought, what is this kid going to do? What is he going to become? This is incredible. And here is this famous boy who is known throughout the whole region, now grown into a man that everybody knows. Everybody knows about the wild man in the wilderness preaching repentance. Everybody knows. And he says, you think I'm great. 
compared to Christ, I am nothing. John is attracting crowds, but Jesus is better. John's entire purpose was to point to one greater than himself. In John chapter 3, 25 through 36, we see this. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, the one who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I'm going to pause there for a moment. You see, John is not just speaking figuratively here. He's not just saying, Jesus is better than me. He must increase, so I must decrease. That's true. But literally what John is saying is, my esteem among the people must go down so that Christ will go up. Remember how this conversation started. Uh, John, that guy that you baptized, everybody's following him now. He's baptizing people. Is this, like, this is a problem, right? And John says, no. He must increase, but I must decrease. John recognizes that the longer he is out there drawing these crowds, the more likely it is that they're going to be focused on him instead of where they should be focused, which is on Christ. Verse 31, back in John chapter 3, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things in his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. John the Baptist gets it. John the Baptist is Trinitarian. He recognizes the Son and the Father. He gets it. John the Baptist understands. He must increase, but I must increase decrease. Why? Why? Because John talks about the wheat and the chaff. The wheat and the chaff. He says that when you, that the, the one who is coming, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff you will burn with unquenchable fire. If you are unfamiliar with wheat farming, let me give you a little bit of a, a, in some insight here. Wheat and chaff grow on the same plant. One of them is useful. One of them is turned into bread and other things. The other one is garbage. And then what happens is you have to let them both grow. And then you harvest them. 
And then you have what's called the threshing floor where you break it apart and you know what you do? You toss it up in the air and the wind blows the chaff away and the wheat falls to the ground and you harvest the wheat. And so what is happening here? Among the nation of Israel, there are those who are wheat and those who are chaff. Those who are of God and those who are not. And what is the purpose of Jesus? To come to separate the wheat from the chaff. That's what he's there to do. John understands that part of what the Savior's coming means is what the Old Testament prophets talked about. That the Lord is going to separate out those who are truly his people and those who just claim the lineage. John to bear out fully how much John recognized the importance of Christ over himself, he died a prophet's death. He got on the bad side of Herod the Tetrarch, one of those wicked people we talked about earlier, because Herod stole his brother's wife. And so Herod had him arrested and thrown in prison, and later on, through a series of very unfortunate decisions, John is beheaded. He literally loses his head. Why? Because he must increase and I must decrease. I said at the start that the coming of this prophet with his message of repentance is the kindness of God. And it is. The call to repent might seem harsh, it might hurt your feelings, but it really is the kindness of God because you have not been destroyed yet. But we must be wary of doing what our flesh desires, which is to use that kindness as a license to sin. Paul in Romans chapter 2 says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourselves. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you, that you who judge those, judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It is tempting to say, well, God hasn't struck me down yet, so I guess I'm doing all right. What you are doing is presuming upon the kindness of the Lord. And the kindness of the Lord is meant to lead you to repentance. The kindness of the Lord is meant to make us say, wow, I deserve destruction, and yet God has not utterly destroyed me yet. I should repent of my sin. But instead, in our flesh, what do we do? I'm free to sin some more, and some more, and some more. And as John's message told us, repentance bears fruit. And so if you say to me, I have repented of my sin, I have professed my faith in Christ. I'm saved, pastor. And your life bears no fruit in keeping with repentance. You are mistaken. 
Whether you're lying to yourself or you're lying to me is unclear, but you are lying. Because true repentance bears fruit. And so the question this morning is, are you changed? Are you wheat or are you chaff? Are you in Christ? The call to us this morning, as we prepare a week from now to celebrate the birth of our Savior, the call for us is to heed the words of the herald. Flee the wrath that is to come. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, no matter how young or how old you are, you are a sinner. And you are destined for the wrath of God. That was John's message. That was Christ's message. That's the message of the Bible. That apart from Christ, you will perish. And so this morning, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to come and talk to me. To seek me out. Because I will be glad to share with you how you too can repent and believe the gospel. How your life can be changed by Jesus Christ. Because the truth is this, you will die. And when you die, you will stand before the Lord in judgment. And if you are not in Christ, you will face his wrath for eternity. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for the truth that we find in its pages. Father, we pray that you would grant repentance to those here among us who do not know Christ. That you would draw them to yourself. Father, that they would be convicted of sin and of righteousness by the Holy Spirit. That Christ would be lifted high in their heart today. Father, for the rest of us, I pray that we would continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That our lives would be marked by the change brought about by the gospel of Christ. Because he has changed us. Father, speak to your people during this time. In Christ's name, amen.